Okay. Uh, please follow along. Uh, page 8 of the bulletin, the lesson from the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 2. These are the generations of the heaven and on earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. When the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him... I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every little living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But now... But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed it and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked, and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. We're going to begin speaking to the young people among us. Do y'all like riddles? Yes. yes, I love riddles too. So I have a few riddles for us this morning. You might not want to blurt out the answer right away because these are riddles that you kind of have to think about for a moment before you say out the answer. What wears rings without having fingers and leaves without going anywhere? 
Anybody? A tree. Very good. All right, here's a question about a tree. There are 52 birds perched on a single tree branch. A poacher comes along, shoots one of the birds twice. How many birds are now on the tree branch? 51? I'm sorry, no. 52? No. Darlene? None. Because when you shoot the bird, all the other birds leave the tree branch. There are no more birds on the tree branch. I told you, you have to think about it for a little bit. Similarly, let's say you have a peach tree. There are peaches on a single tree. After a strong gust of wind, peaches are no longer on the tree, but peaches are also not on the ground. How is that possible? Peaches on the tree. Peaches fell down. Not on the branch, not on the ground. How is that possible? Yes, Lucy. That's a, that's a good, good guess, but not quite. They got eaten? No. There were only two peaches on the tree. Do you get it? Peaches are not on the tree. Peaches are not on the ground because a single peach is left on the tree and a single peach is still on the ground. Boo, that, okay, no. Boo, bad one, all right. Forget that one. All right, what about some dad jokes instead then? A little more popular, perhaps. What kind of tree can you carry in your hand? Palm tree. What did the pine tree wear to the lake? Swimming trunks. That's right. Very good, Lucy. What kind of tree does a math teacher climb? Geometry. Good work, McConnells. And what tree has two eyes but cannot see? There might be a lot of answers for this one. One possible answer is a white pine. White pine. I. That's right. There's two eyes in white pine. I'm sure you can figure out many other trees that have two eyes. So in case you have not guessed it yet, all of these riddles and jokes and whatnot have a theme. What is that theme? Trees. Because tis the season for trees. As you may have noticed, Christmas time is somewhat obsessed with trees. Our normal trees have been replaced with Christmas trees. We've scattered various Christmas trees all throughout the church. Our family put up our Christmas tree yesterday. And this morning, as we continue our series in Genesis, we will be looking at Genesis chapter 2, and specifically we'll be looking at trees. And not just any trees, but two very important trees. First, the tree of life, and the second, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So as we look into God's word, I ask that you please pray with me. Dearly Father, we ask that you would fill our hearts with joy and gratitude during this Advent season. In the midst of all of our busyness, just the hustle and bustle of the, act, uh, of the holiday season, the end of the school semester, the end of the year, help us to not lose sight of Christ, our Savior. I pray that through looking at the importance of these two trees in Genesis chapter 2, that you would help us to see Christ more clearly the salvation that he offers, and the life that is found only in him. It's in his name that we pray. 
Amen. All right, so we finally made it out of Genesis 1. We are now in Genesis chapter 2. But it's important as we move out of Genesis 1 to not forget about Genesis 1 because Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are actually meant to be read together as one unit. They're meant to be read side by side. So the best way to understand the relationship between the two chapters is to understand them as two different perspectives on the same events. Genesis chapter 1 is like the big picture. It's kind of the bird's eye view that reveals a transcendent almighty God who brings order from chaos, light from darkness, death from life, who creates man, humanity in his image to share in the rest of his divine presence. So that was what we talked about in Genesis 1, all of those things. Genesis 2, however, is that same story, but zoomed in more closely so that we can see details, specifically the details of day six. So day six only takes a few, different, uh, a few verses in chapter one, but chapter two is like zooming in onto those few verses and adding many details, specifically as they relate to the creation of humanity. So in Genesis 1, that we saw that humanity's great blessing and ultimate goal, the end for which God creates us, is to share in his rest, to experience and live in the fullness of God's presence for all times, everywhere, with his people. Genesis 2 then tells us how God intends for, us to, for, uh, for this to happen. How does he bring about this blessed sharing of his rest? And the way he do, does that is by centering on two trees, that happened to be in the center of the Garden of Eden. So if you'll read with me, this is Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. Uh, and just, you should just know that the word for midst can also just mean the very word for middle or center. So n- not only the fact that it's in the garden, but it's in the central location of the garden. Meaning these trees present the central importance of what the garden represents. So in the midst of the garden, in the middle of the center of the garden, you have the tree of life, and also you have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the simple lesson for us this morning is that through faithful obedience to God's commands is the path of true blessing. That's what the trees teach us. Blessing is found through obeying God's commands. So we look at the two trees this morning, first the tree of life, and then second, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So first, the tree of life. You may have noticed, but we're actually given very little concrete information about the tree of life. All we're told is that it exists, that's there in the center of the garden. But the information around it seems to indicate that the tree of life represents the promise of life that God holds out for his people. If you recall in Genesis chapter 1, specifically verse 27, we learn that God creates humanity in his image. It reads this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. So Genesis 1, that's like the big overall picture. But as I mentioned, Genesis 2 zooms in. So he tells us more about this creation of humanity. And he says this in chapter 2, verse 5 through 8. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So this is like all the background information. This is setting the stage for the creation of humanity. Verse seven, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. What I want us to notice this morning 
is that when God first creates man, he does not create man as a living creature. It says that he first formed the man of dust from the ground, then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and only then are we told that the man becomes a living creature. Do you remember how I told you in Genesis 1 how the same word that's used for image is the word that's used for idol or statue? So the picture we get is that God creates a statue of himself in Genesis chapter 1 to be his representative. And then in Genesis chapter 2, God breathes life into this lifeless statue. A picture of deeper intimacy and personal connection than we receive in Genesis chapter 1. So like all the other animals that God creates, Adam is made from the dust of the ground. It says this also of animals in verse 19. The stuff we're made of, physically speaking, with animals, it's all the same. So ancient wisdom, as well as modern science, would agree. We're all made from the same stuff as animals. But unlike all of the other animals, we're told that Adam is a spiritual being, meaning he is imbued with the very breath. And here I ought to mention that, again, in the ancient language, the word for breath is the same word that you have for spirit and the same word that you have for wind. Wind, breath, spirit, they're all part of the same idea. So the breath of God is the very spirit of God. It says, God created Adam as a lifeless creature, and he breathed his own spirit into him. And that's what made Adam truly come alive. By virtue of the spirit breath of God, man becomes a living being. And the implication for us this morning is that the life that God refers to in Genesis chapter 2, when he talks about the tree of life, It's something more than just merely physically being alive. The physical processes that keep our bodies functioning and operating. Because the same thing is not said of animals. There's no verse that says, and God breathed his life into the animals as well. It says God made animals out of the ground, and that's it. God formed Adam out of the ground, but then he breathed his life into him. And even though we know that animals are alive, I'm sure many of us have pets at home, they are alive, but they're not alive in the same way that we as humans are. There's a difference between us. And if being alive is different for for humans as it is for animals, then its corollary, death, must be different as well. See, animal death has a very different meaning and significance than human death. Animal death is a part of the natural order of the world, but human death is not. Human death is completely unnatural against the way that God has designed us. Because animals do not have the same calling as humanity to share in God's divine rest, then their death is merely a normal part of their life cycle. But if you're not only alive, but you're spiritually alive, and you're not only created to live, but to live forever with God in his presence, then death really is the loss of all hope. In other words, death is the cutting off of one from God's presence and the impossibility of the fulfillment of God's promise of his presence in all its fullness. This is why, jumping ahead in the story, but this is why when Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they don't really die physically, right? God doesn't strike them dead immediately in the way that it seems like he says, if you eat of the fruit of this tree, you're going to surely die. They don't die physically, but they truly do die spiritually because they are cut off from access to the Garden of Eden and the Lord's presence in it. So the tree of life then, It represents the promise and the potential 
of living forever with God in his presence. And we learn in the story that access to the tree of life and all it represents comes only through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is why God's command centers around that tree and not necessarily the tree of life. So the tree of life is like the promise that God holds out for Adam. And the way to partake of the tree of life is by passing the test at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, secondly, this morning, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Previously in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, we learn that all the plants are suitable as food sources for humanity. So God makes it very clear. Verse 29, God said, Behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. So the tree, all the trees are available for Adam to eat from as food. Genesis 2 then introduces the one exception to that rule. Verses 15 to 17. The Lord God takes the man, he puts him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. The Lord commands the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. So once again, God begins by emphasizing the abundance of his provision for his people. He says, you can eat of any tree you want in the garden, except for one. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The question that we should all be asking is, why in the world did God make this tree? Why did God create the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And why would you make its fruit so tempting and so appealing? Wouldn't it have been a better idea to make an ugly tree with rotten, bitter fruit that nobody would want to eat and make it like hard to access, like really high up in the tree so you couldn't really just reach out and grab it? Isn't that a better idea? to teach us about sin and how ugly it is and how against God's purpose it is? And why put it in the very center of the garden? Why not put it in the corner of the garden, far away and distant, so you didn't have to see it every day? That you didn't have to be reminded that it was there? And then why point it out specifically to Adam and say, that tree, don't eat from it? Why do all those things? You know, there's a reason that the term, have you heard of the term forbidden fruit? There's a reason why forbidden fruit is in our common usage. Because for some reason, we as humans, we always want what we cannot have. I'm sure you know what that feels like. We not only want what we don't have, but when we can't have it, often we want it even more. So this morning, I'm going to offer you two reasons why God creates this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, why he places it in the center of the garden, and why he prohibits Adam and Eve from eating from it. Two reasons. First, he does it to test Adam's loyalty. And secondly, he does it to confirm Adam in his righteousness. So God creates this tree in order to test Adam and to reward Adam. So first, to test Adam. Verse 9, again, out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant for sight and is good for food. Two trees in the center of the garden, one, the tree of life, secondly, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we're told that God, he specially creates every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The implication meaning there doesn't seem to be any difference between these two special trees 
and every other tree in the garden. They're actually just like all the other trees. If you were to look at it just on the outside alone, we are told there's nothing different about them. The only different thing is that God has told you that they are different, that he has marked one as the tree of life and one as the tree of knowledge and good and evil. You see, the distinction between these two trees and all the other trees is God's declaration of their symbolic importance. There's nothing else. The trees appear pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil then gives Adam an opportunity to acknowledge God's authority and submit to him as Lord and trust in his word above his own sight and his own judgment. Because you remember, God has given humanity an incredible responsibility and authority. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God blesses humanity and he says to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So when God creates humanity, he says, rule and subdue the entire world. You're in charge. I've made this beautiful world and I've put you, Adam, and your offspring in charge of this world. But Adam must always remember that the authority that he has is a received authority, meaning it's given to him by God who's a higher authority than he is. Humanity is divinely commissioned to govern other creatures on God's behalf, the ultimate purpose being that the whole earth should become God's temple, the place of his presence, displaying his glory. So this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, it's a reminder that Adam serves under God, the great king. So the prohibition regarding the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thus crystallizes the question that all of us continually face in each of our lives. Questions like this. Who's really in charge? Who's really in charge of my life? Who's wise? Who knows best? Who's allowed to dictate my behavior in my life? The tree is a test whether humanity will be faithful to his covenant Lord. And it's not that God doesn't want you to have wisdom. You know, a lot of non-Christian or secular interpreters of this story, they believe that God wants to hide knowledge from humanity. They interpret it as a way of saying, you know what? God doesn't want humanity to have knowledge of good and evil. He wants humanity to be blinded, to live lives of blind faith and obedience to God, but that's not what it is. What God is trying to say is, I want you to have wisdom. I want you to know the difference between good and evil, but the way that you learn it is by trusting in God by hearing from his word, by listening to him, by obeying him. In the words of the Bible, it's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's what the tree is trying to teach and test Adam with so that he might know the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So first, the tree is intended to test Adam in his loyalty to God, to remind him of his status as a vice regent, as a servant of the king. But secondly, it's also meant to confirm Adam in his righteousness. So what I mean by that is right in the very center of the Garden of Eden, Adam has two very visible options before him. On the one hand, he has the tree of life. And on the other hand, he has the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He has a choice between blessing and curse, life and death. The path to the tree of life which represents true life with God in his full presence. Things like peace, contentment, joy. 
all the things that we truly long for, which I think it's ironic that during this Christmas season, ostensibly about all those things, peace, contentment, joy, oftentimes doesn't feel that way. Oftentimes this season feels more like increased busyness rather than peace. Materialism, and the desire for more instead of contentment. And oftentimes this is a very lonely period in people's lives rather than joy. It's like we want peace, contentment, and joy. We want these things. We want God and his presence in its fullness. But we don't understand that these things can only come as a result of life with God. The path to the tree of life, which represents true life with God in his presence, only comes as a result of faithful obedience to God's commands. That is the lesson of the two trees. So the scenario that God establishes in Genesis 2 is the potential that Adam has to enter God's rest, but only if he obeys and does not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, heaven for Adam and his people must be earned. Heaven must be earned. Of course, it's a gift from God in the same way that everything that we have, all of life is received from God as a gift. But in order for humanity to experience the life that God intends and the life that God desires to have for him, then he must faithfully obey God's commands. And in Adam's case, it's the command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And as a result of obeying God, Adam would be confirmed in his obedience and all of his offspring would be blessed in him. And what I mean by that is, if you think about it, do you think Adam would have to time and time again face the test of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Like, let's just think about it. Let's say Adam succeeded in the first time. The next day, would he again, the serpent come and be tempted again, over and over and over again, to prove himself worthy? And what about Adam's children? Would their son and their son's sons and their son's sons always have to pass the test of the tree? It doesn't seem like that. It doesn't seem like that is what God intends It seems that Adam, as the representative head of all humanity, he faces the test. And if he were to pass it, then he would be confirmed in his righteousness, guaranteeing the blessedness of God's presence for himself and for his people for all time. But in the coming weeks, we'll see that Adam and his wife Eve, they ultimately fail at the test of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And much of the rest of the biblical story reflects all the devastating consequences of their sin and rebellion against God. Yet this biblical story also contains this strong impulse toward a second so-called tree. Not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but the tree of Calvary, upon which God, through Christ, gave himself up for his people in order that they might share in the divine rest that he has promised them. You see, in every single way that Adam failed at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, Christ has succeeded. He has successfully passed the test on the cross of Calvary. He has proved himself to be the faithful covenant son and servant. And as a result, Christ has been confirmed in his righteousness, which he offers to share with us. Luke chapter 22, verse 39 through 44 says this. This is right before Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus goes out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. 
He withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Make no mistake, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into when he was going to the cross. Nothing at the cross was a surprise to Jesus. He willingly took it upon himself. He knew that he would be betrayed and abandoned by all his friends. He knew that the cross involved being forsaken by his heavenly father. But what did he pray? He said, not my will, father, but yours be done. In obedience to the will of God, acknowledging him as the covenant Lord and submitting to him, he passed the test faithfully. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. And because of that, Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 through 9 tell us this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So I think it's very likely that the author of Hebrews is thinking about the prayers that Jesus offered in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're told that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Right? We're told that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground because he was in agony and prayed more and more earnestly to him who was able to save him from death. And we're told that Jesus' prayers were heard because of his reverence. But how does that work? Jesus is praying to the one who can save him from death. And we were told that his prayers were heard, but were Jesus' prayers answered? Didn't Jesus still die? Didn't Jesus still go to the cross and suffer a horrific, painful, excruciating death? Yes, but did Jesus really die? Because you remember in the garden, life is just not physical life. Life represents the peace and the presence of God. And so yes, they were able to kill Jesus' body, but God raised him up from the dead in order that he might truly live and share his life with us. It says, Jesus Christ was made perfect and in doing so became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And this is the offer that is set before each one of us this first Sunday of Advent. The one who has come down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was born of the Virgin Mary, Jesus Christ. We are told he is the source of eternal salvation. His success can be your success. His righteousness can be your righteousness. He has earned heaven for you. That's what the cross is. Adam failed to earn heaven for his people. So God sent his son his only son, his true son, Jesus, in order that he might succeed where Adam failed, in order that he, through his faithful obedience to the will of God, might become the second and true Adam, the one that we are united by faith in him in order that we can receive all the promised blessings of God, the one that he's given us from the very beginning, the promise of God, the fullness of life with him, his presence with us, with his people, forever, in all places, in all times. That is what Christ came to bring for us 
And that is what we look to him as our one and only hope in life and salvation. Christ, through his faithful obedience, he has brought us to be a people who together experience his full presence at all times and all places. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8 says this, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God, our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we admit that oftentimes we struggle to not just believe your promises, but to even imagine them, to conceive of them. We find it difficult to grasp what your full presence actually means. We're thankful for the glimmers of it that you allow us to experience in our lives today. The richness of the blessing that you give us in the community of faith among your people. The families that you have blessed us with. Moments in time where we grasp and are filled with wonder at the beauty of your creation. The goodness of your will and the wisdom of your word. We pray, Lord, for more experiences like that, particularly during this Advent season. Pray that you might help us see Christ more and more clearly and what life with him is like in order that we might continue to long and hunger for the day in which we will be fully united with you. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his faithfulness to you your commands. We thank you for his obedience. We thank you for the faith that you have given us that unites us with Christ in order that his obedience might be ours and that his life might be ours. We pray, God, that we might respond to the gift of salvation with hearts of joy and gratitude and worship, for you are our creator, the giver of all good things. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.